everyone, and welcome to The JW Show. I'm your host, Joshua Washington, Director of the Institute for Black Solidarity with Israel. And I'm here with Shira Goldstein of Israel. I'm very excited to talk to her today. Shira, thank you so much for being here with us. Yeah, of course. It's great to be here. I, um, I'll let you talk about Israel, but I, my, I just want to say my first impression of Israel was a very personal one. Um, and that's actually what, be, outside of Zionism and Israel and all those things, I, I just happened to stumble upon it um, after the earthquake hit Haiti. Um, and, and so from there, I just started telling all my friends about what Israel had done and, and how they're often the first or one of the, at least one of the first people to, to re- arrive at, at the scene after a disaster has happened. And so it's, it's some really incredible work, but I'm excited to hear more from you about more specifically, um, what Israel is and what it does. So can you please, um, can you tell us more about Israel and also, um, because I know you've led missions around the world. How did you come to the organization? Yeah. Um, first, thanks for having me on. It's it's always wonderful to speak to people about the amazing work that we have the opportunity to do. So, you know, thanks for that that chance. Um, Israel Aid is a very interesting organization that drew me to them when I was a young professional for a number of reasons. One is I really like the, what we call the philo, the <laughs> first in, last out. Mm. Um, aspect of this where it takes a very, I think, unique Israeli approach to say emergencies are messy um, and we can only do so much planning until we've actually had boots on the ground, Mm -hmm. understand what the real impacts are and really understand where are our unique added value, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And this this approach is one that I really appreciated because I'd I'd been living abroad for a number of years before I came across Israel and I'd seen a lot of much bigger, much more rigid organizations kind of bring a very cookie-cutter approach to emergencies. Mm. And while there were some benefits to this in terms of they already knew what resources they had in hand when they arrived on the scene of a new disaster, those resources weren't necessarily always the most useful for the local context. Mm. Um, and I found the approach that Israel Aid has, which is let's get there, let's send a team, let's be flexible, Let's really figure out, you know, what what needs to be done and how can we help um, to be a much more appropriate way when dealing with disasters specifically. Now, this mm-hmm. isn't an approach that I'm talking about for long-term development, but this is really, you know, how can we be the most helpful to the people that are really suffering from an emergency in a way that they need the help, not in the way that we perceive they need the help. Um, and this transitions into a... Uh, a recovery period, a long-term, you know, response period. Typically, Israel stays in the country where and when necessary for anywhere between two to five years, depending on the population's needs. Um, and that's why we say first in and last out, because very often we go for the emergency and we stay for the long-term development plans, which can be anywhere from, you know, mental health to gender-based violence to economic development. It, it kind of runs the gambit in terms of what programs end up being the long-term focus as the emergency unfolds and as the development um, of, of the nation kind of settles in and, and starts to understand what is really needed after this emergency. So a lot of, a lot of what Israel does is it takes uniquely Israeli um, either technology or 
let's say, mentality in terms of how to deal with emergencies. And then they export that to different countries and, and do their best to then um, make it appropriate for the local context. Wow. So so getting away from that, the whole can you just for a second expound a little bit on you said you Israel stays away from like the more cookie cutter way of of <laughs> how they do things. What, what do you mean by that? So, for example, we have, I think, garnered a reputation as an organization that deals with the mental health component of right. an emergency. Now, you know, we can say we work in what we call MHPSS, mental health and psychosocial support, but that will look very different in different countries because the cultural nuances of what is appropriate in terms of mental health support vastly differ in all these different countries that we're working in. But not only that, people's responses and people's needs to mental health changes. So sometimes right. they are, you know, art-based and music-based. Sometimes they're more clinical in terms of supporting the government response. So while we know that bringing an MHPSS component is a strength that Israel has, right. partly, unfortunately, in response to the environment in Israel and the quite high number of professionally mm. trained um, mental health technicians that deal with emergencies, yeah. You know, that's kind of like an, an underlying concept, but the actual program itself and how we approach it can can change. Wow. That's incredible. Wow. So in in light of that, too, I know that uh, Israel has been responding to humanitarian crisis for almost 20 years now, uh, and it's worked in 53 plus nations since its inception uh, and it's responding to COVID-19 in 16 countries today, can you give us some examples of African nations where Israel aid has worked? Sure. So I can briefly just kind of go down the list and, and uh, tick them off. But yeah. we've worked in Sierra Leone, Mozambique, Liberia, South Sudan, Uganda, and Kenya. Um, and those have all been in responses to a variety of different emergencies. So, for example, um, Kenya is in the uh, Kakuma refugee camp and they have a lot of child-friendly spaces and they deal a lot with what it means to work and live in the very dangerous environment that is one of the world's largest refugee camps. Um, in Liberia and Sierra Leone, it was looking at you know the Ebola epidemic, which then transitioned, as you know, we'll talk a little bit more in depth about today into a much bigger, um, much bigger program. And, for example, Mozambique was after a cyclone. So you have, you know, natural disaster, an epidemic, and a refugee environment. So, you wow. know, it all looks right. pretty different. My goodness. Right, right. So you, so some of the countries you guys have been in already and, and were able to assist with the pandemic um, just because there were already boots on the ground. So is that what you're saying for some of, some of these places? Yeah, I mean, I think having having a presence before uh, emergency hits yeah. is always in your favor, and obviously you can't anticipate that. <laughs> um, but there are, you know, personal ties and a depth of knowledge that comes with operating in a country, for even for a matter of months. Like for example, Mozambique, we only um, went in the middle of last year, you know, May and June. We started solidifying our operations after Cyclone Idai. Whereas in um, Kenya and South Sudan and Uganda, the organization has been there for many, many years. So it really just it really just kind of depends from each country what that's going to look like. But um, for sure, having a presence there beforehand, 
and knowing people and knowing how people respond to a health-related pandemic because there are always very specific nuances of how people respond to something that spreads person to person based upon a cultural understanding of what health is. So being there and, you know, having this experience of working with these populations before has definitely given us, us an advantage in that. Wow. And, and speaking on Cyclone Idai, um, I know Israel responds to natural disasters that many of the U.S. have never heard of. Israel is, also, is unique in that it fills gaps, including by um, operating in geographic areas where humanitarian aid is lacking uh, or filling in uh, programmatic gaps. This was the case under your leadership when Israel responded to Cyclone Idai in Mozambique. Can you begin to briefly describe the cyclone and how it affected people and uh, how many were affected? Sure. Um, so the official numbers are, we believe, to be much lower than um, they actually are in reality. And that's just because when you're working in a country like Mozambique, which is massive, I mean, it's huge. It's like a third of the um, East African coast. Gorgeous, by the way, but <laughs> huge. So when you're working in these massive swaths of land, it's really hard to get a proper tally because a lot of people live in very rural environments. Mm. Basically what happens, um, Cyclone Idai made landfall in the Sofala province, which is kind of in the middle of the country. And it unfortunately utilized the natural um, port of Vera, which is a city in the Sofala province, and essentially made landfall in this town and then through use of the river that kind of went in um, in and actually all the way into Zimbabwe, it kind of caused this massive tidal wave of flooding to, to disrupt a huge portion of the country. So there was a lot of loss of life. They say officially about 1,300 people were killed, although we all who work there believed it to be, I mean, exponential, exponentially higher. I can't say exactly what number, but just from antidotal reports and the number of, you know, missing family members, we all assumed it was much closer to like 10,000. Oh my um, goodness, wow. But officially they said it was it was 1,300. Um, a lot of people lost their crops. That was one of the, mm. the biggest things that have actually caused a lot of problems this year because there's massive food insecurity in most of Africa d- due to droughts. So this was just kind of insult to injury in effect where... They said 16,000 homes specifically were destroyed. Um, But then there were another, you know, I think they said something like 400,000 acres of crops that were that were also destroyed in the flooding because it wasn't just the the biggest thing with cyclones. It's the wind and it's the water. So if the wind went once it makes landfall, the wind usually dies down because then the power is sucked out of the cyclone because it hits landfall as a temperature change. It it you know um, adjusts itself to the land rather than the pressure and the temperature over water, and so the wind usually dies down. But what's left is the flooding, and the flooding got all the way up to the roof level of many of these homes. So if you can imagine, you have you know crops, and the flooding is high enough that it reaches you know maybe five, six, seven feet up to the roof of your house. The entire um, area in Beira and the Sofala province that was flooded out, many many people lost their livelihoods. So when we when we talk about these emergencies, you look at the immediacy of it, which is the terrible, 
you know, power that can be unleashed on a, on a people and the loss of life, the loss of home, the loss of property. Um, then you also have to look at the long-term effects, which is, you know, unfortunately due to all the uncertain changes in the climate around the world in the last 10 years, these, these events are getting more severe. So if there's more drought and there's more flooding, it just means that having stability which plays into regional stability politically, it plays into food security, it plays into stability of the home, access to education for kids, because many families were uprooted and put into um, refugee camps. As far as I'm aware, they're still, they're still there today. These camps are always billed as quote-unquote temporary, but they never end up being temporary. Very often it's cheaper for the government to keep people in these camps than it is to actually relocate them back to their homesteads and rebuild their houses. Um, and if we're talking about, you know, 16,000 houses that were completely destroyed, that's a that's a big ticket. So the, in terms of, like, the steps that Israel took, we, we looked at the short-term effect and we did a lot of, um, we did a lot of relief. So basically just the essential items, you know, food, water, clothes, all the, all the things that, that people need access to. Um, our midterm response was to bring in what's called the NOOF system. Um, and that is to try to get people access to clean water. So it is a it is a community-based mechanism by which these um, these pretty incredible filters were pumped were, were sent over from Israel and they're hand pumped. Very often in places like Mozambique, it's very flat, and so a lot of the uh, water filtration systems that we use in other countries have um, gravity that helps move the water through the filtration system. But here, if you're on just like flat surface, mm-hmm. gravity isn't really going to do a whole right. lot for you. So these systems, basically, we would put them in centrally located areas that are rural, but that have either enough homes or like a village around them. We would teach people locally, train them to be technicians and how to both manage and upkeep these systems. And then it's, it's a hand pump. It brings the water up from the deep wells that were most of them... Um, were destroyed after the hurricane because mud and all these things were put into the well, so the water is no longer clean. So even though the hole may exist, you can't really access water from it, and drinking water is always a problem after a, a massive um, natural disaster like this. So you basically use the new systems to then pump the water up. It cleaned it out. Uh, it was a double filtration system, and then that basically provided clean water on a daily basis for um, a number of communities. And I believe we installed just over 20 of these, so that's 20 different communities um, to access clean water. So that was kind of like our most immediate, like, all right, people need water, people need shelter, we, we know that we can help with this. Um, and the long-term effect, or the long-term effect that we're looking at trying to mitigate is the mental health, specifically that of kids. Um, you know, there's there's a real there's a real serious component that it's impossible to step around, but also so difficult to um, to really understand the depth, which is when you're a child and you go through something so terrifying as not only living through and witnessing a disaster like this with, you know, winds that are high enough that it blows your roof off of your house while you're still in it, um, but also to seeing the death and destruction around you. I mean, there's no real good way to deal with that as a child. There's no real way to deal with that as an adult. But especially when you're a child and you don't have the physical vocabulary to express your terror and your grief, it's always really hard recovering from these kinds of things. So 
we embarked on a very large program um, supported by GIZ, which is the um, German development company that provides um, grants for long-term programs of exactly this nature um, in conjunction with the Mozambican government to embark on a 18-month program to help train teachers throughout the entirety of the Sofala province on how on how to work with kids, basically, um, how to how to help them deal with their emotions, how to bring you know active and positive games and um, engagement into the classroom setting, um, and just also to provide teachers some basic skills for their own coping mechanisms and um, awareness in this. That's empowering. That's very empowering. Wow. I mean, I, I just need to say that it, it it goes beyond just help, you know, from what I'm hearing, you know, or just assisting with this and that is, is it seems to me like what you're saying from what you're saying so far anyways, that Israel really empowers people to, to uh, be able to sustain themselves uh, long term, which is just, that's, that's amazing. That's, that's, you know, it's, aren't there things that you don't necessarily really have to do, but it's incredible that that Israel takes those steps. Wow. And so, so we know that, that Israel, like we said before, is responding to COVID-19 in 16 nations. Uh, but COVID-19 is not the first health epi- epidemic to reach Israel or to which Israel has responded. Um, you were instrumental in Israel's response to the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone and Liberia. What programs did Israel implement to respond to this crisis, and what was unique about its approach? Yeah, so that, I mean, <clears throat> the Ebola epidemic was a very all-encompassing time, to say the least. Mm, yeah. Uh, we, started off, we started off in Sierra Leone, um, and we, were, we actually took a, a much broader approach in Sierra Leone than what we ended up um, moving into in Liberia. So we had a number of partners um, in Sierra Leone, and we were working with the burial teams, which isn't something that most people typically think of. But um, I don't know if you know much about how the Ebola crisis unfolded, but one of the biggest problems is that culturally there are specific burial rites that happen in Western Africa, and those burial rites, many of them, are very physical and very personal to the family. So unfortunately, when family members were being passed um, were passed on, what would happen is a ritual cleansing of the body. And it was during this cleansing of the body, preparing them for a burial, that many family members became ill. And at the beginning, this was one of the this was one of the main vectors that many families were being completely wiped out from. Maybe one or two out of twelve family members would survive, and they were usually the kids because they had the strongest immune system. And so you know, the country was watching all these families respecting their, you know, beloved ones who had passed on in their traditional manner, but that it was this level of respect that they were giving to their dead that was actually causing them to become ill. So then the burial teams had a very, very difficult job of going into homes and removing dead bodies and burying them in a way that was not traditional but was safe. And this caused a very um, a, a very hard time for many of the burial teams because this is their own people, you know, these are their own um, community members and they're going against tradition, but they understood their training and through um, their interaction with the international community as well as their um, local public health teams that this had to be done, unfortunately. So 
one of the first major programs that we embarked on in Sierra Leone that lasted for about, I want to say, seven to eight months during the height of the Ebola crisis was providing social support and relief to the burial team members themselves, um, ensuring, of course, that they were using PPE appropriately and protecting themselves, sorry, personal protective equipment, um, and making sure that they themselves were protected, but also just helping them deal with a really terrible burden of the necessity of the job that they had in front of them. Um, and we were also supporting a number of different um, like trainer of trainers in terms of very similar work that I was mentioning in Mozambique, working with teachers, working with counselors, kind of helping people understand not only how to interact with um, people in their community, but to give themselves some of the tools that they needed as they were you know, responding on the front line. Um, this then transitioned into a very extensive program in Liberia um, that was support provided by UNICEF. Um, and it was it was actually a really fascinating program to not only build, but also watch unfold, where we had the task for a full year to go out and train every single teacher and the majority of the counselors in Liberia on a very specific model that um, was really championed in Israel in terms of how do you bring in some kind of creativity and bring in some kind of support for kids in the classroom when the teachers are overwhelmed when the parents are overwhelmed, when everyone in the community is exhausted and terrified, right? <laughs> so we, we embarked on this very um, extensive training program in which we had, I want to say, five different locations around the country in which we then brought the teachers to us, basically, so we could do a very interactive model. And for two full weeks, we had all the teachers and the counselors from these different regions sit with our um, trainers and really not only provide a space for them to express their own grief and sadness and terror and all the emotions that come along with dealing with a pandemic of this nature, but also really then capture those and remember those emotions and then figure out how to then verbalize them and utilizing a number of creative arts, most notably um, like drawing and music and um, acting out, so like filling out different um, roles through like playing, how to help kids then tap into those same emotions and then how to help children express themselves. So it was a very, um, it was a very intensive and kind of like deep dive into the emotional response, but it was also incredible because for the first time in probably about a year, um, these teachers were being asked to express their own their own feelings and were being given the space as well to deal with them and then take their own learnings and then pass it on to the kids. Um, and then actually we ended up transitioning from that in the last, the last year in Liberia, we were focusing on a joint project with um, UNFPA and UNICEF looking at the um, gender-based violence in Liberia, because unfortunately, very often, um, these these kind of massive disruptions to society provide openings to more nefarious activities. Um, and the rates of rape and child trafficking spike dramatically, both during and after Ebola. Um, and as we were doing the trainings with the teachers, this issue kept coming up over and over and over again. And we said, okay, we can't ignore this. 
And so that's when we approached UNICEF um, along with UNFPA, which is the United Nations Fund for Population. And they're the ones that deal mostly with women and children issues, notably, you know, gender-based violence. Um, and we were we were supported for a, an additional year to really look at taking ourselves out of the classroom and looking at a community-based environment. How do we train um, community champions that then both the youth and the adults can help to identify, refer, and support survivors of gender-based violence and then promote this in the on the community and the school level to let kids know what their rights are, to let adults know what the services available are, and really connect it very pragmatically to the clinics that actually have the services that can help the survivors. So part of it was information, part of it was, um, you know, bolstering these clinics, and the other part of it was um, building up community response mechanisms to not only respond to, but also hopefully prevent these cases from happening in the future. Would you say that the, some that these things that you're discussing now, like post post epidemic, separates Israel from every from other um, response teams and other organizations around the world? Yeah, I mean, I think it it goes back again to this idea that I was that I was speaking to of flexibility. Mm. Um, you know, we we went in to Sierra Leone purely with the understanding that this is. Ebola, and this is a medical emergency. Mm. And we ended up transitioning into working in two countries for two and a half years, looking at everything from training teachers to long-term community responses to gender-based violence. Mm. Um, mm. We also stayed in Sierra Leone for uh, an, an additional year and a half after I left because I transitioned out of Sierra Leone into Liberia, and we had another team member take over the Sierra Leone office. Um, right. But they did everything from responding to mudslides to, uh, you know, technical skill-based projects to help with the economic component, because that was really what Sierra Leone was um, struggling with after Ebola. So even though we both started in terms of Sierra Leone and Liberia starting off looking at the short-term ramifications for Ebola, we transitioned into very different programs based upon um, the needs that the population was showing us. So, yeah, I think that 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 mentality of saying, you know, how can we help now? And then through our ability to get to know these communities, how can we listen to what it is that they're telling us that they that they really, truly need? And then what resources do we have that allows us to, you know, support that? Wow. And in each of these nations, did the local communities know that Israel was Israeli? Um, And, you know, if so, what was their reaction uh, to working with an Israeli organization. Yeah, it's actually funny. I, I felt like whenever I introduced myself, I had to clearly say, I work for Israel, which is not the government. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because a lot of people know USAID, and so they assumed that Israel was the same thing. Um, which is fine, because it connected us to the Israeli government, and there was you know never any problem with that. But I also wanted people to know that we were actually an NGO, and I wasn't officially representing the Israeli government wasn't true. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people really loved the idea of being supported by an Israeli organization. It was it was different. In most places that we went, we were the only Israelis. You know, you saw the typical players of the Americans, the British, the French, the Australians, the Norwegians, the Germans. You know, there's all these countries that are well known for their um, for exporting 
their skills and their and their aid to help in these ways. But I think, you know, Israel is is putting itself on the map as a country that has the ability to do that. And a lot of people were really excited that they were working with an Israeli organization. And we had a number of our, as far as I'm aware, over the last five, six years, a number of people in, engage in exchange programs. And, um, you know, we actually got the Sierra Leonean president to visit Israel, which was pretty amazing, just in terms of, like, supporting ties between various governments and also just promoting an understanding of what it means to live in Israel and, you know, why Israel has such a close historic tie to emergencies and wanting to to use their experience to benefit other countries in the sense of like, well, we've gone through this <laughs> and now fortunately you're going through this, so how can we how can we help, you know? Um and and I think that people always were really interested in Israel. I, I got a lot of just general queries about, I mean, you know, I myself, I'm American, but I spent a lot of time in Israel, um, not just through this organization, but I lived there when I was a kid and went back and forth a lot. So while I'm not Israeli, I have a decent idea of what it means to live in Israel and to be in the country. And yeah. I always had just a ton of curiosity. And so it was it was cool being able to also foster that like cross-cultural interest. Right. And it sounds like because of Israel too, it's or Israel has been contributing to the relationship between Israel and Africa uh, in a big way, which is like I, I was aware of, of the Sierra Leonean president visiting Israel, but um, I didn't make that connection. That's that's really awesome. Yeah, well, we were really heavily supported by the first lady of Sierra Leone. I met her a few times, and she's really a very passionate woman. Um, she herself comes from a um, psycho like a, a psychology and a health background. So when we said that we were going to be working in the mental health field, she became very interested and was a huge promoter and supporter of what Israel Aid was doing, which was really, you know, a wonderful ally to have in our corner in terms of, unfortunately, around the world, not just in the African subcontinent, but around the world, mental health is still so misunderstood in terms of what that really means. You know, I think there's still a lot of negative connotation on that, unfortunately. When really all we're talking about is just <laughs> trying to get yourself to a point where you are happy and stable and, you know, have the right coping mechanisms to take care of yourself and people around you. Like, that's it. But there's all these other things that people, that you know, come to people's mind. Um, and so having a support and advocacy at the highest level within the office of the presidency was really, was really wonderful. That's incredible. Wow. Wow. That's awesome, Shira. Well, I, so first of all, I um, I want to thank you for sharing this with us because I know a lot of our listeners um, are maybe aware of Israel Aid but not aware of the depths of, of what of what it does and, and how it affects the world, but particularly the continent of Africa. Um, so thank you for sh- for sharing with us. Um, and also, so for our listeners too, how can we get involved with Israel Aid? Yeah, so um, the best way is to contact um, Rachel Wallace, who's our Director of Outreach and Engagement. Um, You know, you can, uh, I guess, contact you directly to get her her information. Um, She is always looking for people who want to volunteer or, you know, if you have expertise in the field, become involved professionally, you know, always looking to expand 
our roster of people that work with Israel um, and also just I think generally being aware of what's going on in the world which I know with COVID right now I think people either can take the approach of a turtle <laughs> you know which is pulling arms and legs into your cells and kind of shutting down which I fully understand because it's it's overwhelming with COVID and you know natural disasters increasing every single year there's there's so much going on but I think we live at least in the U.S. and to the the people that that you know I had the fortunate ability to grow up with we live in this in this bubble where if we want to we can turtle you know we can pull in and we can focus on our families and our communities and our, and our immediate area and say, this is it. And while that that's admirable, there are so many people around the world that are living in conditions that don't have that luxury, that need to, you know, walk hours just to try to find some kind of clean water, or that don't have any protection even in their own home. And I think the idea of just making yourself aware, having conversations, engaging, looking outside of your immediate community, there's so much merit to that, you know, just in the education piece and the engagement piece um, that just in general, outside of Israel aid, I just always encourage people to really try to try to really, you know, really see what the world is, is actually like, because even though we're experiencing a lot of turmoil in the U.S. right now, it's a fraction of what most people experience. Um, and I've, you know, been really off honored to work for an organization that allows me to try to address some of those, some of those issues. That's powerful. That's powerful. Shira, thank you so much uh, for being with us. This is Shira Goldstein with Israel. And again, if you want to get involved, as she said, you can reach out to me, reach out to Ipsy. We'll, we'll get you in touch with Rachel Wallace um, and, and give you the resources that you need. But um, thank you again, Shira. This has been incredible powerful like i said empowering and, and, and just really inspiring thank you for sharing with us yeah thanks for having me it's been a joy speaking to you you too and thank you all for tuning in again uh this is the jw show i'm joshua washington director of the institute for black solidarity with israel and i'm signing off mm-hmm.